Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity titled Building a Comprehensive Obesity Care Clinic is provided by Clinical Care Options, LLC, in partnership with Practicing Clinicians Exchange, ProCE, LLC, and Q-Synthesis, and is supported by an educational grant from Lilly. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to our presentation today, Building a Comprehensive Obesity Care Clinic, uh, brought to you by uh, Clinical Education Alliance, uh, provided by Clinical Care Options. Today, with, with our faculty today, we have, uh, to give our discussion, Dr. Caroline Apovian, Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. She's co-director there at the Center for Weight Management and Wellness at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Uh, we also have Dr. Scott Butch. He's a director of obesity medicine uh, with Bariatric and Metabolic Institute at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. And I'm going to be your moderator today, Daniel Zaidinov. I'm a, a PA in internal medicine with Atrium Health. The answer is actually C, would be the most appropriate answer in this case. We'll revisit this towards the end, but now on to the primary uh, portion of our uh, lecture and talk today. I'm gonna turn it over to Dr. Bush uh, to go ahead and discuss barriers to obesity care. Dr. Bush, go ahead. Yes, thanks, Daniel. So, you know, it's really important to understand just from the beginning that there's gonna be an element of, of, of bias around that interaction that you have with patients, as well as setting up your practice. Common misconceptions are that, you know, patients should just be able to treat themselves. If it's a behavioral problem and obesity is not considered a disease, which of course we disagree with, you know, the thought is that the patient should be doing the work by themselves, focusing on some kind of behavioral change model. And really for the most part, there's been sort of this one size fits all approach where it should be just the low carb diet or just, you know, the one element that is missing that everybody should try to find and, and seek. And, and that should be the, the benefit for them to lose weight. But if we think about obesity as a disease, which it is, we should really treat it the same as other diseases. So consistent follow up, a chronic care model of, you know, is following up with patients. We should think about the use of medications uh, as an adjunct to lifestyle interventions. And then really what we try to do with every patient is really individualize that care, not have that one-size-fits-all approach. 2013, uh, Dr. Povian and others had created treatment guidelines for obesity. And really what we see now 10 years later is that we still don't have a standard, uh, a standard of care model. We have a lot of guidelines out there, but there is this gap. And, you know, thinking about uh, primary health providers using BMI and waist circumference to try to assess somebody's disease risk. What we see in clinical practice is really there's a failure to diagnose. We don't see obesity actually on diagnosis um, labels uh, when, when, when people are billing for their patients. Um, in traditionally, the guidelines have said to lose about three, five percent, and that is very helpful for de uh, decreasing disease risk, as well as understanding that we should 
get out of the practice of thinking this is all about mathematics and we should reduce caloric restriction by 500 calories a day and that should be a pound a week and everybody if they do that one thing should be able to resolve their obesity we've learned too much to understand that that's really not the right approach and that there's really no ideal diet and i think one of the biggest issues and dr pobian chime in when you want to is that what happens is is that the setup is well, if, if the low-carb diet isn't working, well, maybe that patient's doing something wrong and the patient actually believes that. And so there's this sort of failure to escalate the treatment options. And that's what the guidelines you were practicing sort of told us to do, right? Right. So here's the thing, Scott. You can be a primary care provider and you can see a patient in 10, 20 minutes with a BMI of 45, hypertension, elevated blood sugar and lipids. And you usually will take care of the blood pressure if it's high. You'll deal with the blood sugar if it's high and the lipids. But you can let that patient walk out of your office without once talking about their BMI. And that's the fact. You are still considered a great doctor. And this is what the problem is. Yeah, it's right there in front of your eyes and you don't even address it. And actually, if you if you look at the the rates of actually treating appropriately a BMI of 40, which you would imagine per guidelines, which the suggestion would be to think about bariatric and metabolic surgery, less than one percent of people who actually meet that criteria have severe obesity, don't even get referred to and don't get uh, bariatric surgery. So, again, a huge gap here that we see from the guidelines and from what we see in just regular practice. Going along with that, this is more of the same, but thinking about medications. So anti-obesity medications, which are effective, we've seen even recently, and you've learned in the modules uh, that, you know, over the last two years, we've seen highly effective medications reaching 15, 20% body weight loss after a year. But again, that general concept in in actual uh, practice is that, these medications are dangerous, that they're used, they should be used for the short term, that, you know, you should really maximize the lifestyle and, and, and this person should have, a, you know, nothing wrong with them in terms of their lifestyle before you think about uh, medications. And, you know, again, many, many people would qualify with a BMI over 30 or BMI over 27 with comorbidities to, to be considered to where uh, anti-obesity medication could be used. And what we see is probably about 2% of the population that meet that criteria actually receive pharmacotherapy. Again, you know, this, this gap uh, lies straight in front of our eyes. The underlying tone for all of this is really the failure to really recognize obesity as a disease. And that we see in many different uh, situations, whether it's the provider, the institution, uh, public, et cetera. And that misbelief about uh, management management of obesity again bleeds into this this clinical practice. If you if you look at the polls of the Action uh, Study, which is a study done just several years ago, which polled over six hundred providers, um, many of them believed actually obesity is a disease. Yet many still did not bring up the conversation about obesity or about someone's weight. Of their patient's weight 
because they listed lack of time um, or, you know, that there are more important things. Actually, Dr. Pope, you just mentioned earlier, more important, that blood pressure is more important than the obesity. And therefore, there is, you know, this this just shoving aside the the elephant that's in the room, which is the person's obesity. So a lack of formal diagnosis. A lot of people are concerned that they won't get reimbursed. So why even bother? And, and again, the, the thought is, is that if it's a if it's not a disease to push back on the patient and actually in that study, a quarter of, uh, of the providers, again, over 600 providers pulled, thought that the patient was not interested or the patient was not ready or, you know, the patient still had to work on their behavioral uh, modification. And this is exactly what uh, Dr. Povin, you were just saying, this 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 sort of shift that we should consider, yet we still haven't gotten in front of our own feet where we continue to sort of feel comfortable with treating the complications of obesity, like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, et cetera, and not even treating the obesity. And, and, and again, I think that's where sort of providers, perhaps uneducated in obesity, perhaps bias, et cetera, are very comfortable with doing what they've done the whole time of treating the comorbidities and not treating the obesity. But the shift, Dr. Povin, you would think, uh, you know, how do we yeah. get that? How do we help people shift? Well, yeah. So this this is a great schematic because what it's what it's asking us to do is to change the way we practice medicine in the United States and worldwide, but in the United States. So if every single primary care provider would use this paradigm to treat the obesity first. Then what we're going to do eventually is prevent hypertension, diabetes, lipids, heart disease. Okay. We will prevent it because we'll treat the obesity first, which causes everything. But that's going to take a few years. And it's certainly it's going to cost more up front because we're going to be treating it with medications, not just diet and exercise, but medications and surgery eventually, 10, 20 years down the line, we are going to reduce the healthcare burden in the United States. We always see ACE, uh, the you know Clinical Endocrinology Society, already adapting sort of this treat the obesity first model. And, you know, we commend them for doing that. So we, we're seeing the shift begin, but uh, important to understand. Um, and all in all, again, I think hovering back to sort of these ongoing bias, systemic bias that exists is if you're a patient seeking treatment um, and you go and your doctor or provider tells you just to eat less and move more and, you know, moves on to the next topic, you're not too excited to go back to that, to that, uh, to that provider. So certainly we see a low rates of patients seeking treatment. They, again, again, that action study, they actually believe that, uh, you know, it's their responsibility. Majority of people, over 3,000 people polled in that study, still believe that their responsibility is, their weight is their responsibility. But we have to educate primary care and healthcare providers about the benefits of, of therapies, of combination therapies with medications, there is a certification. The American Board of Obesity Medicine provides a certification of knowledge. Uh, and then, you know, the unfortunate side effect of having medications that are new and 
and effective is the fact that insurance companies themselves, perhaps uh, several uh, several amounts of of bias that exists, don't think obesity is a disease. So why why bother covering these medications? So a lot of a lot of barriers to to practicing good uh, care with our patients with obesity. Again, you see on the right uh, reasons for not prescribing medications. Uh, uh, providers aren't comfortable with that. They don't have familiarity. They fear about that these medications are are very dangerous. And, and again, these are all have been refuted. Um, and, and education is key in this point uh, as well. Again, here we see that um, if you think about patients, 48% of patients with obesity believe that they could lose the weight themselves. And again, that is the bias that the patient brings to the table when we see them. And a lot of a lot of patients want the autonomy and say, okay, well, I guess I've I've lost, you know, 100 pounds before. I know I can do it again and, and, and want to have that autonomy to choose. Uh, but this is where the lack of understanding, the lack of knowledge about the science of obesity and metabolic adaptation, which you've learned in these models, comes back to to really help the provider drive drive that as well. Yeah, and I can't say say too much about this unfortunate problem, which is just the lack of reimbursement. And insurance companies uh, are, are clearly biased in this. Uh, many, many insurance companies out there just refuse altogether to uh, cover these medications. And again, if you're you think about the education factor, if you don't believe that obesity is a disease and don't understand the pathophysiology, why would you want to cover these medications? But a huge injustice. I love this quote from Petty Nice. Um, people talk about some of these drugs being game changers, and I'm sure all of you have seen this in the headlines over the last couple of years, uh, how this can really help patients uh, lose weight. But it's never going to be a game changer if they can't afford it or they can't get access to it. So uh, really uh, solid on that, and I think that really explains most of what I want to say here. Again, think about Medicare, again, uh, uh, covering a majority of our patients. Uh, the Treat and Reduce Obesity Act has been uh, something that I've been personally involved in over the last 10 years. And still, um, it is a struggle trying to get people on board. Uh, we're doing better and better every year, but it continues not to receive a vote or get attached to another bill. America's health insurance plans decline to whether they would support we do see the federal government employees getting covered these days. This happened about la last year. But again, health insurance companies continue to, to review the evidence. They understand the evidence, but they continue not to, to cover um, these medications. <clears throat> Moving on to multidisciplinary approach to obesity treatment. This is very important. So again, what does it take? to treat obesity. If we think about who's involved, certainly a team of providers, we understand the complexity of this disease, therefore it needs a, a, a treatment to match that complexity. Um, insurance, again, is a, is a problem, but there are treatments that work. Uh, now, obviously, clinics will be different from one another, but clearly the players involved are an obesity medicine specialist, which can be a physician, a health uh, APP, advanced practice provider. But again, that level of expertise is is really uh, lacking. There's only probably about a hundred people who've 
uh, in the United States who have completed fellowships in this uh, obesity medicine. Dietitians and psychologists are clearly involved, but that depends on the practice, but are clearly needed. Bariatric surgeons who perform surgery, gastroenterologists who do endoscopic devices and procedures, all can be interventions that we can use. And obviously understanding obesity is a, a complex heterogeneous disease, that there's going to be people who need some of those or all of those providers because it's not one size fits all. And so having all those options available is obviously the ideal scenario. But what we run into, again, is we can have all the options, but if we don't have access or we can't afford it, we're, we're still behind, behind the times. The guidelines that Dr. Povian worked on uh, showed that, and we all know, is that probably about a 5 to 10% uh, weight reduction can uh, clinically be beneficial for many uh, complications of obesity. These effective uh, approaches, though, were really found within this multidisciplinary team. And again, a team that can provide all of the options is going to be the team that you're going to want to be able to take care of yourself. Um, but again, this should be at the core uh, of, of all obesity care practices out there, but it's not, unfortunately. Um, and again, the fundamental principle of chronic disease management needs to complement that, that committed patient and also with informed providers to effectively match the chronicity and the complexity of that disease. So in, in lies, again, the point of having multidisciplinary care, which includes many play, uh, players, as I as I had mentioned just before. I would just add right here that having an insurance coordinator, and I don't know, Dr. Povian, if you have one, but there are so many uh, prior authorizations now that we actually need one person to do all these prior authorizations. And so because of this complication and these barriers, what, what are you seeing in your practice? Uh, yeah, we have a farm... Uh, farm tech doing our prior auths. We need two. We have, uh, you know, five doctors, three nurse practitioners. We saw 10,000 patients last year. And so one is not enough uh, because the prior auths can take days. And, uh, but having said that, if every single primary care provider sent in prescriptions for their patients with obesity, which should be happening, the somebody has to do something, right? There's going to be a barrage of prescriptions out there for obesity treatment that no one, no one's covering. And yes, we understand that the companies would go bankrupt. Medicare, Medicaid will go bankrupt if we start, if they start covering obesity. But guess what? Somebody has to subsidize this so that 20 years from now, we protect the health of the country. That's what has to happen. Okay. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> we need more advocates like you and, and myself out there. Um, yeah, and, and again, I think, you know, this is a patient-centered treatment. Uh, we're all in, in, in the conversations that we have with patients, our, our, our shared decision-making process of informing the patient of what the options are available. Maybe, and I'm sure you do, uh, Dr. Povian and I, we do a lot of education up front to really make sure that patients at the level of understanding and, and to be informed to make uh, a good decision with our uh, us as the provider. 
again, the physician, the the APP are really at the center of this. And there's a lot of uh, trust in physicians. And I think that's been a big problem uh, among treating obesity is the the lack of trust of patients uh, for their providers who clearly are biased or don't understand obesity. So we are considered the best source of health information. But uh, again, that has to change with education because clearly we're not meeting that mark. Again, talking about medications, again, this is a chronic disease. So even though patients might undergo metabolic and bariatric surgery, we know that, you know, there are going to be people who don't respond at all. Some people respond very well, but they still have obesity. So this study looked at, you know, when to address um, weight regain or weight gain after surgery. Again, those definitions of what is weight gain are still out and not really we haven't come to a consensus, but this was a very good study looking at the rate of weight gain and looking at the severity of uh, the amount of weight that is gained and really using that multidisciplinary team to best address that person's weight gain and certainly investigation of what the causes may be. But again, delivering um, effective therapies, and sometimes that involves an anti-obesity medication after bariatric surgery. We think about a cancer model and somebody getting surgery for cancer, then getting chemotherapy or radiation, the same way we should think about obesity. Again, treating obesity as a disease using multidisciplinary care, uh, but this was an excellent study. And just like, you know, when we have cancer therapy that, that, you know, and you get recurrence of the cancer, we don't say, well, you know, it didn't work. We say the cancer is aggressive and recurred. So this is the same um, paradigm we should be using for bariatric surgery. It works, but most people regain some amount of weight because of the aggressive nature of, of obesity in this environment. And the treatment, the treatment for weight regain requires intensive monitoring and most likely an anti-obesity medication before you consider surgical revision. Yeah. I mean, obesity is a progressive relapsing disease. And I think that is just critical to understand and really believe in as we care for our patients after, uh, you know, big interventions like a surgery that they still need to be treated. Um, And again, uh, there's going to be a multiple healthcare professionals in there, whether the obesity medicine specialists who take a good weight history. It's very important to take a weight history. I know you've learned that in these modules. Uh, looking at medical complications of obesity, risks and benefit of medications. Dietitians are also uh, part of that. But again, the dietitian's job isn't necessarily to help that patient lose weight. They should just really optimize the nutrition and the health of the diet of that individual. So the burden of having to lose weight and cause weight loss really is relieved from the dietitian. Exercise specialists clearly should help someone um, integrate healthy activities and get the health of the muscle back. Therapists sometimes are needed to optimize not only mental health of the individual, but also to reduce those psychosocial barriers to um, engaging in a lifestyle modification. And then clearly our surgeons and endoscopists are available for those procedural interventions that are sometimes needed as well. 
again, creating an office environment, not only from the environment of the office, the physical space, but also the space within the providers is very important. So imaging and uh, having chairs that can fit patients that don't have arm rests on them. Um, physicians themselves should be engaged in healthy activities. Um, vending machines. Again, I, I want you to think about not only that physical space of a clinic, but the institutional space and be advocates for patients with obesity and getting some of that imaging or those food options. There's been numerous studies by, uh, by several uh, physicians actually looking at how things are displayed in, in hospital cafeteria, and that can really have an impact not only on your patients, but also on their families. I think walkable uh, programs over lunch is a great way to have an office um, meeting uh, or just doing that individually or even walking with your patient during a uh, clinical encounter. <clears throat> Clearly, the role of the physician and the healthcare provider is, is very important of how they address the disease of obesity and how they're acting themselves. And this is just an interesting uh, study in, in looking at the activity of a physician or a healthcare provider is more likely to provide better counseling to their patients. Uh, so again, engaging in healthy, uh, healthy lifestyle yourself can really help uh, your patients. And this is more of the same being a good role model. Uh, this is uh, a larger study looking at uh, the physical activity levels of physicians and their attitudes and practices towards counseling. Again, if you're engaging healthy practices, your ability to counsel uh, is going to be more uh, significant. Um, and this is, again, a multi-centered uh, uh, multi study, and it looks like a systemic uh, analysis of multiple studies. Again, showing a positive association between the healthcare provider's lifestyle and their ability to counsel. On the other side... Uh, overweight physicians, physicians who uh, are struggling with the disease themselves uh, may not be sending strong messages. And we see that in other disease, um, um, uh, disease states where you have cardiologists who are smoking, telling their patients to quit smoking. Uh, again, think about your own lifestyle when you um, are being a role model and your ability to deliver counseling. We understand that this is a progressive relapsing disease. Therefore, a long-term therapies are needed. And so that commitment to your patient and the frequency of communication is, is critical to managing our patients. That multidisciplinary team is going to, again, help all patients. You know, there's different subtypes of obesity, and therefore patients may need certain therapies, whereas others, different therapies. That multidisciplinary effort is going to be really helpful. The, the, the skills of the healthcare provider, dietitian, and other team member, members is, is, is essential, but I would say their attitudes is even more important. The attitudes around obesity uh, as a disease and the chronicity of that disease. And speaking of chronicity, again, that long-term commitment and frequent communication is key to keeping people engaged, patients engaged, and keeping them uh, pointed in the right direction towards their goals. Thank you for that, Dr. Butch. Sure. Uh, so, so of course, you know, with us as, you know, a lot of us pr practicing in primary care, 
a lot of times that's the first entry and first discussion where people have that, you know, at least thinking about um, losing weight, obesity management, you know, even well before they even consider uh, weight management uh, evaluation or referral. So uh, between the both of y'all, what are your thoughts and recommendations about how primary care providers, whether it's internal medicine, family medicine, can incorporate some of those obesity management services into their own day-to-day practice? Yeah, that's a very good um, question and something that uh, is, is you can do fairly fairly easily if you try to do it by yourself without, you know, APPs, you're going to see that very quickly you're going to have quite a long waiting list to get in because, you know, 42% of Americans need these services. 42% of Americans have obesity, even more, you know, are at risk. So uh, I would recommend that if you want to do that, that you uh, enlist the support and help from your dietitians. You should have at least one or two or more in your practice, um, so that you are you have support for uh, dietary therapy. Um, it's very difficult to get uh, exercise physiology help because usually it's hard to get reimbursement for these services. So <clears throat> make sure that either you or someone in your practice, maybe a PA or an NP, have specialty care, uh, um, have some kind of training in exercise recommendations, exercise physiology, uh, or is a personal trainer and got some kind of credential. And, and that can be very helpful as well. And then to uh, consider employing. PAs uh, to help you see these patients. So right now, that's what we're doing. Um, Every single provider in my practice right now has a 12-month waiting list. And we are attempting to uh, see see our patients. We're trying to see them every few months because that's what you need for intensive counseling. Um, And it requires either uh, APPs in your practice so that you can reduce your waiting list or some kind of an internet based uh, program where you can where you can send patients. And we're going to be talking about that in the next few minutes. Yeah, I just quickly add, you know, starting with the end in mind, obviously, if you're beginning to think about incorporating, you know, obesity management services into your own practice, you're caring for your patients who have obesity is. As Dr. Poving was just saying, you know, over 40% of Americans, adults have obesity. So thinking about even setting up a, a very good uh, supportive clinical environment, as I spoke about with, with the right chairs and, and furniture, having the scale um, in your practice, not in the middle of where everybody can see it. So having a scale privately, a scale that can measure up to weights of maybe 500 Pounds, just for example, having right messaging in the literature and, and um, information you you have um, in offering in the waiting rooms, and, and really educating your own providers and staff members in your practice uh, about obesity—that is a disease—and treating people who have obesity with respect, 
just those little things is the one of the best ways to get things started. And obviously, incorporating uh, other providers into your practice can be one option, as Dr. Povian was just saying. But another option is just finding uh, these providers who make up a team uh, that you can refer to, uh, making sure they're they have the same attitudes and beliefs that you do, but really don't feel that you have to hire a whole uh, service where the, the referral process certainly can happen as well. Thank you for that. Um, and to proceed, we're, I'm gonna hand it over to Dr. Apovian to discuss telemedicine and obesity management. Go ahead, take it away. All right, so this can be very helpful uh, to, to, um, to support your patients. Um, and and the benefits of these programs um, can be seen in practices that are already adopting them. Um, really, uh, you will spend the time in your office to um, I- I encourage uh, diet, exercise, along with uh, medications, and even uh, assisting patients considering bariatric surgery. But for any treatment plan, diet and exercise alone, medications, or bariatric surgery, long-term weight loss requires behavioral management. And this can be uh, assisted with e-health. So now it's true that if you look at uh, e-health elements alone, you're not going to see as much uh as as uh, it's not as efficacious, let's put it this way, as in-person support. However, if you compare it to control, which is you know uh, pamphlets and and things like that, um, it certainly comes close to in-person support. So the 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 weight loss is nearly nearly the same. And we typically say, if you look at the literature on e-health versus in-person hybrid programs where you get in-person and e-health come close, very close to in-person um, alone. Uh, and, and you get about three quarters of the weight loss and maintenance of that weight loss as you do with in-person completely. It really comes close. So I recommend this because you're going to be able to see more patients, more new patients. As you uh, see the new patients, your e-health will take care of even assisting with the weight loss and most importantly, the weight management. Okay. So, um, and also e-health is convenient. It obviously minimizes travel time in and out of the office. You know, we used to we used to have support group meetings that were weekly. We still have those. And, there, and, and people who can come in to your hospital or clinic every week for a support group meeting, we have that here. It's called our Intensive Lifestyle Therapy Program. Yeah, they do great, but very few people can do this. So if you can combine an in-person support group with the ability to do this virtually, you will capture more patients and get almost the same outcome. All right. So what programs are there out there? You can use MyFitnessPal. Um, you can use 
telephone delivered cognitive behavioral therapy, video conference delivered group interventions. And this is what we do with our program. Okay. So um, what does it take to incorporate e-health into your practice? Well, certainly, you know, your patient has to have access to the technology. Now, most people now have a smartphone. So this is not an issue in even in settings where you have safety net programs. Standardization, you've got to have a standard standardized program so that your, um, your outcome doesn't depend on who's giving the program. Um, you know, your attitudes have to be uh, positive towards this. So you need to adopt, you know, attitudes that, uh, that are positive that, yes, these programs can help. You need some kind of aptitude and training to use this technology. And, of course, advocacy is always important. Now, um, as of June 2015, we see that not many primary care providers recommend weight loss programs. And so um, we need more advocacy and more positivity towards weight loss programs. Um, and, And communications for tech enabled programs are increasing, but slowly. And there are many reasons for this. Uh, Most of the time, the primary care doctor is so busy that uh, this kind of tech is is not even being considered, considered. So what, how do you choose mobile health? Again, it's 84% of, of United States adults now own a smartphone. And I can say that it's probably our, you know, our, our burgeoning geriatric uh, population that may not be as tech savvy. So they need more support revolving this, but still 84% do. Um, and uh, the benefits are myriad availability, flexibility, low cost. That's very important. Um, and uh, it can allow for the virtual check-in so that there's less travel time and less uh, uh, time away from work, all right? So you can track the weight loss, physical activity, um, uh, and monitor progress with these, these programs. And the market is increasing. It, uh, the top-rated apps, MyFitnessPal, MyNetDiary, but, you know, it's important to pick what is going to work for you and your practice. Okay. So it's important to start slow in your practice. What is the biggest mistake that a physician can make that using, you know, these data dumps that don't affect your clinical outcome? You know, you don't need all of the data. You're not going to look at it. Um, so. Don't collect the data if you don't have the means to sort and use it. This is true for, you know, these apps that will track every single calorie you put in your mouth. You don't know what to do with that, then don't use it. All right. And it's important to get an idea of what your patients would like to do, because if they don't want to do it, then it doesn't matter Um, if you if they can't implement it, then, of course, it's not going to matter. So. 
let's have a discussion uh, about what we've implemented. I can tell you that right now at Brigham, we have a PCORI funded um, uh, program called Props2. We are utilizing an, um, a program called Restore Health, and we are enrolling 8,000 patients uh, from all of our PCP sites who are interested in, in, in losing weight. And the primary care physician just has to um, approve it. And the patient is enrolled and um, into this program where uh, we can track. Uh, they are given a personal coach online. We send them a scale. We track their exercise, their, their, their uh, workouts, uh, their weights, and uh, provide dietary health habits. And it's going very well. And we are really able to, from our weight management waiting list, we're able to get these patients at least into Restore Health while they're waiting to see the obesity medicine provider. Scott, what, do you, what, what kinds of things are you doing? Yeah, I mean, if we think about just at the core of what the benefit of providing some kind of e-health or m-health to the patient, from the patient's perspective, and as you were saying earlier, you can keep up that frequency, those touch points with the patient. Uh, so we we engage, and we have a sort of a hybrid of of, of using virtual. And, and Cleveland Clinic, prior to the pandemic, was was doing a lot of virtual visits, and we do those still. But you can incorporate the sort of a hybrid, uh, increase that frequency where you might not be able to provide that anyway. Uh, but on the patient's perspective, that self-monitoring is very helpful. Uh, and again, as long as they're engaged, I think it's it's helpful to, depending on the level of, of, of knowledge and what p- providers are comfortable with, you can go beyond uh, looking at just a diet or calories. You can look at timing. You know, the, the more we know about circadian rhythms and the timing of eating uh, can be a very invaluable uh, asset to, to observe and, and try to work with a patient on. On the, on the provider side, I think it gives that element where as a, a provider with perhaps a, a higher level degree, you can have a lower degree provider. You can have a nurse, you can have a dietitian, uh, a nurse practitioner do a, a great work in providing the, the same amount of care through e-health or interacting, ver, you know, whether it's through EMR, whether it's on the telephone. So the ability to touch people uh, with a degree of frequency and the amount of people. We do a lot of shared medical appointments at the Cleveland Clinic in our practice uh, where we see multiple patients virtually uh, in one setting. And that really is helpful for that group uh, mentality and support, as well as providing excellent obesity care. Yeah, you'll you'll uh, the patients will love it that you can get your patients more of your patients uh, treated. You know that the, the doctor who's doing obesity medicine can see more patients and then get them into an right. e health program. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about web based interventions. If you compare in person and a completely in internet delivered programs, as I said before. In-person gives you the best weight loss, best weight maintenance. However, if you do a hybrid 
a program like we're talking about where, uh, you know, you can see the person maybe initially and then every six months if they're into this Internet-based program where you have a provider talking to them over the Internet, you can still get good weight loss. Now, this doesn't show um, the three quarters the, uh, the best hybrid programs will give you three quarters of the weight loss and weight maintenance as in person. What resources are available to you as a primary care provider? We talked about internet and commercial programs, um, communities, self-help books. You do have the obesity specialist. So if you're a primary care provider, find out where your nearest obesity specialists are we know we're still training people for this, and we need more in this country. Find out who your bariatric surgeon is and your dietitian. The YMCA's are fabulous for this, but so are parks, running clubs, walking groups, hiking, after-school sports. And this is specifically for exercise. But remember that, you know, it's calorie reduction. It's a major predictor of weight loss. The problem is how to do it. and it, you know, the diet doesn't matter. Pick the diet that's going to be most amenable to your patient and the calories will be reduced. And if they're not, because, you know, the way to reduce calories with a diet is to make sure you have uh, uh, nutrient dense volume of the food with high fiber. And if that doesn't work, then you really need to consider one of one of our medications. Um, dietary recommendations, you know, you need you need fat, you need protein, you need higher protein if your if your patient is losing weight in order to support um, less loss of muscle mass. So that's very important. We usually promote high protein diets. You still need carbohydrates, but make sure they're high uh, fiber carbohydrates, um, less added sugar, and your beverages should be uh, low calorie. There are many structured weight loss programs that are available. Um, you can use meal replacements. We don't have too much time to talk about this, but still a great way to go. Thank you for that, Dr. Apovian. Um, we have a 36-year-old woman. She has a past medical history, you see, of type 2 diabetes, class 1 obesity, uh, and she just following up with you as her PCP uh, for just a routine follow-up. She reports to you that she, and she's been on dilaglutide. She's lost about 15 pounds since starting it, but she's trying to lose additional weight by making lifestyle modifications, which we'd love to hear as PCPs. Um, you know, she wants to incorporate a healthier diet and improve her physical activity. Uh, but she mentions that she's struggling to make some healthy food choices and has been thinking about and looking into some commercial diet programs just to help keep her stay on track. We see her vitals there um, of note, A1C 7%, BMI 32.9. Her medication, she's on max dose metformin, 1,000 milligrams twice a day, and picoflozin daily, and then dulaglutide daily. And I'm going to turn it over to the faculty just to get their input, what they think would be a great uh, a 
appropriate and appropriate next step for this patient? Well, the important thing here is that, um, you know, nothing's really wrong. They're all great options, but there is probably one thing you can do that uh, would be the best option. To me, it would be changing dulaglutide to terzepatide, same kind of a injectable, but terzepatide uh, being a GLP-1, GIP uh, moiety um, would uh, increase dramatically the potential weight loss that that patient would get while still treating uh, the, the hemoglobin A1C of seven. And since it's still seven on dilaglutide, you do want to do something about the diabetes. Now, you, know, you can also add an anti-obesity medication, but you would be adding another medication to the dilaglutide. So I would, I would think that provided insurance coverage is going to you know, work here, terzepatide is very expensive and the insurance company may say, well, no, patient's on dilaglutide. So you're going to have to advocate. So is the patient for switching to terzepatide. But that's what I would do. Certainly reviewing options for commercial diet plans and recommending the patient join the gym. Those are not bad options, but for the biggest bang with, uh, for your buck would be doing that. Would you agree with me? Dr. Butch? Yeah, yeah no, I, I mean, I think it's on target. You have somebody who's maxed out on the other uh, diabetes medications. You know, to your point earlier, treating the obesity first, you know, with that that switch to, to Zepatide, you're not only having a more effective medication, uh, a medication that's helping diabetes, you're having a more effective medication uh, in terms of the uh, in terms of weight loss, uh, where you have, you know, clearly significantly better outcomes with terzepatide. And I, I think the key, unfortunate key line that you just said is provided insurance coverage, which is really what we have to talk about these days, which is the most boring topic, but the, the one that has to be part of the conversation. I mean, obviously, you know, this kind of patient that may come to you <clears throat> What for me it conjures up is, and if you take a sort of a, a weight history, what this person might be really frustrated with the fact that they've lost some weight and they've begun to plateau. And I think, again, getting back to sort of the bias around how we think about obesity and understanding, you know, obesity as a disease, plateaus are often seen and perceived as 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 negative, as if something's not working or I'm doing something wrong. And so I think it's important to realize that patients like we have in this case are coming to the encounter with that in mind. And it's really important to sort of, you know, get them off the edge and educate them to saying, you know, looks like you've responded pretty well to the, the dulaglutide, but obviously your body has responded and you've begun to plateau and that's okay. But that means we have to add something else, adding another medication to treat the obesity, obviously, which would help the, the diabetes all along doing that behavioral modification, whether it involves a commercial program or uh, going to an exercise trainer. I mean, we all have to do that regardless of our, our, our weight. So I think um, that would be my sort of thought. And then I, I you know, I, I would be remiss not to mention bariatric surgery. You know, if all options are are not working, we just know that surgery provides a, a weight independent effect on diabetes. So regardless <laughs> of weight loss, 
you have an effect on diabetes. So it really comes down to that patient's quality of life and how badly that diabetes uh, is for them and the chronicity of that diabetes. Exactly correct. Uh, that's that's great. Yeah. So, um, uh, and going back to that, um, I just want to uh, reiterate that, you know, we do have uh, new guidelines from from the surgical programs where this patient may actually be a candidate for surgery now because, you know, the BMI is basically 33 with diabetes and has, you know, done lifestyle also on medication um, and uh, has exercised. So this, this patient may actually be a candidate at this point for a surgical option. That's very important to understand. It used to be greater than 40 BMI or greater than 35 with with diabetes, sleep apnea, or another serious condition. But now we certainly have uh, guidelines for metabolic. We're, we're calling this now metabolic surgery, not just bariatric surgery, because as Dr. Bush said, we are also treating not just the obesity, but the metabolic complications of, of obesity, sleep apnea, diabetes, heart disease, um, and lipids. It, it truly is metabolic surgery. So I just want to summarize. We've talked about uh, multidisciplinary programs being effective. Uh, so what do we mean by a multidisciplinary program? Physicians, PAs, NPs, behaviorists, uh, exercise physiologists, and one of the most important factors is our dietitians that can help promote dietary change. Um, we didn't really talk too much about psychologists, but that's also a very important part of obesity treatment. HCPs, our healthcare providers, are still considered the best source, source of health information. Um, behaviors and attitude are important for the PCP to impart to the patient. If the primary care provider does not address the obesity, then the patient is not going to get the right idea that treating the obesity is going to reduce the complications later on. Long-term commitment, frequent communication is key. And that's why it's not just about the PCP. You've got to have support teams that can effectively communicate. And if you don't, then you, you should adopt a, an internet-based program to help you support the patient. E-health can be almost as effective as in-person visits. We know in-person is the best. We, we just can't manage that for the 42% of Americans who have obesity. Community resources and commercial plans can be effective tools to assist you as the HCP. And we have many community resources out there, Weight Watchers, uh, the YMCAs, um, and other commercial plans. Um, and uh, Dr. Butch, any last minute? No, I think you summarized it very well. Uh, again, um, you know, I, the hope is after this module and the other modules, you've begun to understand the importance of treating obesity as a disease and, and that it's not just sort of a, a quick short-term therapy. This is something that you'll need to, 
to work on with patients for a long period of time. And that commitment and that attitude that you have is very important to, to have. So again, this kind of synthesizes our discussion today. And you can see here that C would be the most appropriate option. So again, that's our presentation for today. On behalf of Dr. Apovian, uh, Dr. Butch, um, we wanna thank you for joining us today. Hope you all learned a lot. Um, and just as a reminder to earn the CME and CE credit for this activity, click on the button below and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Clinical Care Options, LLC, in partnership with Practicing Clinicians Exchange, ProCE, LLC, and QSynthesis, and is supported by an educational grant from Lilly. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com CME. Thank you for listening.